Today we're going to embark on a 17-week series titled The Sermon on the Mount. Our text, of course, is going to be found in chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel, verses 1 through 12. Now this Sermon on the Mount, it actually starts in chapter 5, verse 1, and it goes all the way to the end of chapter 7. So we see the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7. It's 111 verses, and this is a sermon that was preached continuously, meaning it started and it ended. It started in chapter 5 and ended in verse 7, but it's a condensed version, if you will. Not everything from the Sermon on the Mount, Sermon on the Mount was captured here. At least that's what most scholars agree, and I would agree with that, but you certainly have the essence of such things. So with that in view, remember this, that the Sermon on the Mount is considered to be the greatest sermon that was ever preached. Think about that, the Sermon on the Mount. So somebody's preaching, there's a sermon, the sermon is going to be distributed or spoken from a mount or a mountain. Now the reason why many would consider it or many would say it is the greatest sermon ever preached is because it was the greatest person that ever lived was actually preaching this sermon, that would be Jesus Christ himself. So that's important to know. John Stott, speaking of the Sermon of the Mount, said these words. He said, the Sermon on the Mount is the nearest thing to a manifesto that Jesus ever uttered. It is in this sermon that we, will, that we find Jesus' own description of, we, of what he wanted his followers to be and do. That's a, actually a summary that could be the main idea of our passage here. That's exactly right. I believe what John Stott has said is exactly right. That the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' own description of what he wanted his followers, he wanted us to be and to do. So be looking at it from that viewpoint. He's asking us to do something, but something has to be done before he does something, right? So can I draw your attention to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verse 1. Let's just look at that. Don't stand yet, but just, just look at it right now so we can really think about this. It says this, Seeing the crowds, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So this is important. The primary audience, the primary person that, that he's, he's shooting for here is the disciples or believers. That's the primary audience. However, there's a secondary audience here, and that would be the crowds. The crowds would be those who are curious, but they're undecided. And as the song says, to be undecided is to be decided. So again, primary audience is going to be the disciples, the 12 disciples. So give you some context. You're going to have to go back a little bit to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 4. Let's look at 23 through 25. Let me just read that to you again, trying to give you some context of how we've gotten here. It's important since we're going to be doing this for 17 weeks. It provides context and what's being described as the crowds. Okay, so we've got the disciples, and then the secondary audience is the crowds. So again, Matthew 4, 23 through 25, it says this. And he, Jesus, went throughout all of Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction amongst the people. Verse 24, so, remember, thinking about the crowds, so his fame, Jesus' fame, spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, 
those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. 25, and great crowds, okay? Great crowds followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. So think about what the text is saying to us. It's saying the great crowds were following Jesus. But why are the crowds following Jesus? Well, I think you probably can guess why they were following him, right? Jesus is doing something. There's a couple of reasons why. Jesus is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus is claiming authority, and he wants everyone to know who he is, that he is, in fact, the king of this kingdom. We know this because, again, going back to Matthew's Gospel 3, 2, it says, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus is at hand. But one of the biggest reasons why the crowd is following, the crowd is following because he's healing every disease. They're following him because he's doing something. He's healing all these diseases. He's healing every affliction. The miracles and the healings that are taking place are garnering much attention. So again, that's some of the crowd. That's why they're there. Let me give you more context. Matthew 7, 28 and 29. It says this, And when Jesus finished these sayings, again, here we go, here's the key word, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So what I want you to hear is crowds, okay? We've got disciples and crowds. The crowds are the secondary audience. So let's talk about the crowds. The crowds had never heard anyone speak in such a way. They'd never heard anyone speak with such power and authority. And it says in the text that the crowds were astonished by the message that he was speaking and all the things that he was doing. The crowds were astonished, but listen, they're astonished, but they're not yet committed. There are many that go to church every Sunday morning or go often. They're not committed. They're part of the crowd. Keep that in view. There's two audience always when I'm preaching. There is the elect or the saved, and there's those that don't know Christ, right? So in contrast to the crowds, there are the 12 disciples, okay? Two audiences. The disciples, as we just got done reading in verse 1, chapter 5, verse 1, they would actually watch Jesus go up on that mountain. They watched him. And they watched him sit down on that mountain. And that was the tradition when, a, when somebody would sit down, Jesus sitting down, that would be the tradition of a teacher or a rabbi. And the Bible says in verse 1, his disciples came to him. Isn't it true that true disciples always come to Jesus? That true disciples always draw near True disciples are always sitting at the feet of Jesus, but the crowd is just always in the distance. So with that in view, now we would ask you to stand so that we can read God's word together. And I'll be reading chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. All right. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you, Christians, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Last verse. Rejoice, Christian, and be glad, because there's a reward coming. It says, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So reads God's holy and inerrant word. How precious is that? To know that, that Jesus has a reward for those who can endure and persevere persevere when we're being uh, hammered for his sake. But notice verse 2. Verse 2. It says, and he opened his mouth. He opened his mouth and he taught them. I mean, it's a sermon, right? So he opens up his mouth and he teaches them. And what Jesus gets ready to teach them, specifically in verses 3 through 10, it's a list of things. It's a list of sayings that are called the Beatitudes. So he's going to teach them, and he starts with these Beatitudes, and there's a total of eight in number, and they start with blessed, right? That's what these are. They are called Beatitudes because they begin with the word blessed, okay? Some have translated the word blessed to mean happy. Let me say that again. Some have translated the word blessed to mean happy. I don't think that's entirely wrong, but I think we're missing the point. That is not the primary way to describe this, okay? John Stott does a great job of explaining that the word isn't happy. So I'm going to read it to you. It goes like this. It is, again, these are John Stott's words. He said, it is seriously misleading to render the Greek word makarios as happy, for happiness is a subjective state, whereas Jesus is making an objective judgment about these people. He is declaring not what they may feel, happy, but what God thinks of them and what, and, and what on account they are. They are blessed. And I think that is a great descriptor of the word blessed. So let's look at our first beatitude, and I believe the foundational beatitude, and certainly the most important beatitude, and I'll explain that in just a moment, but look at verse 3. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Well, let me just come up on the front side and say that there's a spoiler alert for sure, because the Sermon on the Mount is often maybe one of the most, it might be one of the most quoted chapters in all of the Bible, but it's also one of the most misunderstood chapters in all of the Bible. And this verse specifically, this verse we just got done looking at, verse 3, is twisted more than a bag of pretzels. People are always messing with this verse and, and doing the best they can to try to describe it, sometimes uh, innocently, but they seem to butcher it. You hear political folks these days, today especially, 
quoting this exact verse. Mahatma Gandhi would quote this verse all the time, not a Christian. So people quote the Beatitudes like crazy, especially Matthew uh, 5, 3. But notice, blessed are the, the, what they quote usually is blessed are the poor. So when we see this quoted, it's quoted, blessed are the poor. That's how Mahatma Gandhi would, would, would describe it and many of the politicians of our day. Blessed are the poor. But the verse is not four words. It's not four words. It says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Don't you agree that if you're going to quote something, you should quote the whole thing? But oftentimes people rush through and they just kind of make it what they want it to, to mean. And, and I think this gets, that gets handled in that, in that way. So blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what is the verse talking about? What does it mean? Well, this is talking about salvation. This verse is talking about salvation. Blessed are those who have been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. This is about salvation, and many people don't know that, and they quote it the wrong way. The word blessed in this context, in its essence, it means approved. So you could translate the word blessed to be with the meaning approved. Blessed are the poor in spirit because... They are approved by God. Now, that's something to be blessed about, to be approved by God. That's a sweet thing. So approval from God is the most important thing that any human being could ever possess, to be in right standing with God, that God approves of you, right? But I would say this, and I think you would agree with me, many people don't want God's approval. They want man's approval and live their lives in such a way to approve or to try to be something to men, right? But this is teaching us we want God's approval. To be approved is a good thing. So how does it happen? How are we approved by God? How can one be approved by God? Well, the three words that are important here is poor in spirit. So how can one be approved by God? Three words, poor in spirit. I like what Kent Hughes says on the subject. He says this, Poor in spirit is such deep poverty that the only way they can survive is by begging. To survive this poverty, one must get help from the outside. A good translation of poor in spirit is beggarly poor. That's what this means. You can translate it literally beggarly poor. So blessed are the beggarly poor. Blessed are those who know they're in poverty, that they're in need of something, right? The poor in spirit have come to realize much, including the realization that they are spiritually bankrupt. So blessed are those who are, understand that they're spiritually bankrupt. The poor in spirit have come to the realization that their sin deserved judgment, but they have escaped such judgment, therefore they are blessed. The poor in spirit are blessed because there's, they're, the, 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 uh, these people who are blessed, they're blessed because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, they have eternal life. That's why they're blessed. Poor in spirit means to be approved by God. 
it means that they're saved. They were blessed when we know that we have our sins atoned for and that Jesus Christ has stepped in and he's paid our fine in his life's blood. So they're approved. So blessed are the poor in spirit. On that subject, I thought this would be helpful. Again, going to uh, verse 4, because I think these could go together. Uh, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn. We now, what we're seeing here, blessed are those who mourn. It's those who would mourn over their sin. Blessed are those who mourn, those that mourn over their sin. We see that when someone mourns over their sin, they understand something, the price that's been paid for their sin. And that's important. What happens when someone is blessed are those that mourn, it's those who see God as he is, but they also see themselves for who they are. They're needy recipients of God's grace. They are broken over their sin. Tozer said these words. I think it was Tozer. Before God can use a man, he must first break that man. Isn't that true? Before God can use a man, he must first break that man. But who wants to be broken? Nobody wants to be broken. We do everything we can not to be broken. We pray not to be broken. But these are people who are broken, broken. So the Beatitudes are designed for you and I to do something. The Beatitudes are designed, they're put in there for a couple of different reasons, but one of them is for us to hold up the mirror, that we as individuals will hold up the mirror and take a look at ourselves for what we really are. I mean, a real, a good look. The Beatitudes strip us naked. It leaves us bare before a holy and a righteous God, that God is looking at our heart. He's seeing us for what we really are. Now, he knows what we are, but we start to see ourselves for who we are because of these verses, and that's why it is so important. Have you ever noticed that mirrors will show you all of your flaws? How many times have you looked in the mirror and you go, oh my goodness? Well, that's what happens. You see, that's what the Beatitudes are doing. It's saying, oh my goodness, right? We are brought, the Beatitudes help us to come to the end of ourselves. And we need that. And the Beatitudes certainly help us to do that. Blessed are those who mourn. One author said this, and I agree with it. He said that the Beatitudes, if you look at them, you start to really stack them on top of each other. There's a progression with the Beatitudes. They just keep building and building and building. And he said these words. He said they're theologically linked statements. They're just bricks that keep, you keep building on, right? They build on top of each other. They're progressive is the point. Again, Kent Hughes says, poverty of spirit is the foundation of all the graces. That's true, we've covered that, right? Poverty of spirit is the foundation of all the graces. And if you don't have it, if you don't have poverty of the spirit, you don't have anything. So if you don't have poverty of spirit, you've got nothing, okay? No one can come to Christ without being poor in spirit is the point. That's why it's so foundational. That's why it's not helpful just to quote a few things because these Beatitudes look like good moral things. That's not the point here, and many people misunderstand that. If we don't understand the first two Beatitudes, we're not going to understand the remaining Beatitudes. They're foundational, especially the first words of this very famous sermon, blessed are the poor in spirit. You know, it's important to pay attention to what the first words of the Lord's mouth is when he's preaching, right? It's probably important, right? 
But the, the, the Beatitudes are a descriptor of those who belong to God. It's a mirror. You look at it and they go, do I belong to God? And the Beatitudes help us to see if we do or not. But the Sermon on the Mount is a call for the church to live according to the values of the kingdom of God. Okay? And as citizens of this kingdom, as citizens of this kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God's disciples live under, sit under the rule and reign of the Lord, not the God of this world. So I might be repeating myself, but I want to make sure foundationally that you understand how this is all starting off. What's he getting at on this Sermon on the Mount? What's important? What's he trying to get us to understand? Again, go back to this. There's two crowds. There's two people he's speaking to. His primary audience, which is the disciples, believers, right, primarily. And then there's those in the crowd. So it's important for us to grasp such things. So how do you know that you're saved? It's a question I get often. I got it in my office this week. How do you know that you're saved? How do you know that you're poor in spirit? Well, it would be simply this. You know, that you're, well, how do you know you're saved? It would be, are you poor in spirit? How do you know you're saved? Are you poor in spirit? Are you broken? Are you those that are, mourning over your sin just those first two beatitudes will help you to see am i truly saved is that true about you are you broken over your sin right but what about verse five blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth i mean this would be quieting our soul uh, to trust god in all circumstances is that something that we do we don't do these things perfectly so this isn't legalism, but is this a consistent pattern in your life? To trust God in all circumstances, that your soul is quiet so you can trust him and listen to him. Remember, the disciples come and they sit around him. They gather around his feet, right? Now, again, this verse 5, blessed are the meek. Meekness is harnessed power. A meek, a meek person is not a weak person. A meek person is not a weak person. The meek trust God and respond to God with your will be done. It's an understanding of authority that he's in control, not us, and we trust him with our lives. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said these words, it is only because he became like us that we can become like him. How cool is it to know that we can become like him? Well, we can. And you say, I'll never be like Jesus. Well, I agree, but we can through the power of the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. So again, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, it's only because he became like us that we could become like him. Here's another Dietrich Bonhoeffer quote, and I'm quoting him because there's a reason I think you're going to really appreciate. Again, here's this famous quote by Bonhoeffer. When Christ calls a man, he bids him to come and die. One of my favorite quotes of all time. Did you know that Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he wrote this book called The Cost of Discipleship, and it's one of the most well-read books by Christians, The Cost of Discipleship. You know what it is? It's him doing an exposition or breaking down the Sermon on the Mount. 
That's what the cost of discipleship is. He just takes the Sermon on the Mount and he just breaks it down. And he calls it the cost of discipleship. The Beatitudes are promises of peace, grace, perseverance for the saved. And he does a great job of exegeting uh, the text. What about verse 6? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. They shall be satisfied. Again, notice, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And we see these promises. We see the reward after all of these. What does it say in verse 6? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, and if you do that, for they shall be satisfied. It's beautiful. In other words, the the pursuit of holiness is, is shown in your life, it's evidenced in your life and in the world. That's what that means. When you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you hunger and thirst after the things of God and it shows up in your life. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Jesus gives us mercy, we receive mercy mercy. We know who we are. We know what we need. Remember, we're broken over our sin. We have been given mercy. How about this? For those of us who've been given mercy, for those of us who've been given forgiveness, shouldn't we offer that to others? If that's in us, that's what we we give back, right? Blessed, verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. By the way, let's just not gloss, gloss over that. Blessed are the pure in heart you're going to see God. These types of people, they will see God. It's beautiful. I mean, this is the foundation of our Christian worship, to be pure in heart. That's why we're blessed when we have these characteristics. Having a vision of God that will win out over all things, to think so highly of your God, to say, I want to please you. Again, not perfectly, but you live that out. Remember, you have been laid barren before a holy God. You're exposed before a holy God on that day of conversion. And when you understand what you are and what you've done and what Christ has done for you, your response to him is, I want to live for you. I want to be a man that has a pure, that's pure in heart because we can do such things. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers. How many times have you heard that? Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are the peacemakers for they shall be called sons of God. Well, do you know a lot of Christians that really are peacemakers? I do. But you know Christians that really aren't peacemakers? I do. We're not to be contentious. Peacemakers are humble. They're humble. There's a spirit of gentleness. They're able to be a man or woman that, yes, can stand on convictions and principles, yet do so without being combative. Blessed are the peacemaker. Don't be combative is what he's saying. Like, blessed are those who really are peacemakers. We are a unified people. The gospel's controversial enough. (laughs) So we shouldn't fight with one another. Blessed are the peacemakers. Being a peacemaker should naturally flow out out of our lives because that's who we are. This is what's in us as those that love Christ. We have the Holy Spirit in us. That you know that being a peacemaker, we are obligated, and we want to be obligated to this, that we would love one another. How will people know that you belong to me, Jesus said, by the way that you love one another, the way you go about your business together, right? We're a unified people. But we also, again, talking about peacemakers, 
But we're seeking to do something. We're seeking to bring peace to a hostile world. A world where many people don't want this type of peace. The unregenerate or those that are not Christians, they need to make peace with God this side of eternity. And the only way that we can do that is to repent of our sins and place our faith in Christ. So we are peacemakers. What about 10 through 12? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. We see that the Christian is going to be persecuted. What's he teaching us? What are we to learn from these beatitudes, right? We're to understand that this is part and parcel, parcel of the Christian life, that we're not to be surprised when people don't agree with us. We're not to be surprised when a workplace thinks that you're crazy. We're not to be surprised when your cousin, your aunt, your uncle thinks you're nuts. But it's actually much deeper than that. These are people paying a high price for their loyalty to the Lord, their allegiance to the Lord. But these verses 10 through 12, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. They're foundational in the area of perseverance. That Christians persevere from time to time. People will say, what happened to Larry or Harry or Bob or Mickey and whatever? We haven't seen them for years. Where, where, where are they? Um, well, listen, if they're not in the local church, if we can't find them, perhaps they're prodigals, but oftentimes we count people so quickly to be Christian when they're not Christian and they're not showing any attributes of being a Christian. They don't look like the Beatitudes, and we're so quick to count people as Christians. Well, maybe they didn't belong to the Lord. Maybe they're the ones that were in the crowd, and they were curious, and they came for a while, and they checked some things out, but they really didn't surrender to him. It wasn't surrender all, it was surrender some. When it got hard, they just bailed. Perhaps that's what we're looking at. The Christian perseveres. These verses, 10 through 12, talks about Christian perseverance. They're foundational for perseverance that they know that the Christian will know and follow the Savior through many tribulations because of the joy set before us. They understand the reward. There's a, there's a promise tacked on to these verses. They're promises. They're, right now the Lord is saying, I give you assurance now that you'll be with me in glory. And I'm certainly going to keep that promise when you die, Right? He has something for us. We see in verses 3 and 10, these are kind of the bookends. It says what in verses 3 and 10? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What's that all about? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Here's what it means if you're in Christ. All these things that we go through. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is a promise of salvation for those who belong to him that surely we can endure a little pain on this earth because know that Something's coming greater for all of us is the point. The kingdom of heaven. But I want to draw your attention one last time to verse 1. Hebrew, I mean, uh, Matthew 5, verse 1. Take a look at it again. Seeing the crowds, 
he, Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Before Jesus even started preaching, there was movement. They were moving towards him. They were already moving towards him, going, go, moving forward towards him. They were coming to him. They came close to him. They wanted to be near him. We contrast that with the crowds. They were curious. We've already read in the text, if we looked at some of the context, that they, they were astounded by the things that Jesus was doing. It was quite impressive. They really enjoyed the miracles. It was a good show, yet most remained uncommitted. They remained uncommitted. Many of those in the crowd, they had what would be called an emotional reaction. They, they were emotional, many of them, as they responded uh, with their reactions to the words that Jesus spoke, but it wasn't a, a commitment of faith. And there's a big difference when someone's emotional, because emotional could be a good thing if it leads you to repentance, if it leads you to a lifestyle that loves God and trusts God. But oftentimes people just get emotional, but it doesn't lead to a heart change. And you see, those in the crowd, they're not being changed. They're not committing themselves to Christ. This is not a commitment to faith. The crowds that Jesus speaks of here, and we're going to continue to see this in the Sermon on the Mount, they're not poor in spirit. And theirs is not the kingdom of heaven. When you're not poor in spirit, there is no reward. The kingdom of heaven is not your reward. They will not have their sins cleansed. They will not spend eternity in heaven. They will be judged by a holy and a righteous God. And this judge will bring down the hammer. The verdict will be guilty and the sentence will be eternity and hell separated from the Lord. Have you ever wondered, I mean, think about this logically. It's not meant to go over your heads. I just really want us to think about it. Have you ever noticed that when a sermon is preached, there are those that step forward, metaphorically they step forward, and yet most step back. Why is that? There are those who respond and those who don't. You know, one of the greatest examples of this is found in the Word of God. I'm going to just read it to you. You can go there with me if you'd like, Luke 18, 9 through 14, but I'll read it to you. I just Again, I'm just going to give you an example of someone, of just we see some respond, some don't. Again, Luke 18, verse 9, then Jesus told this story. It's important, Jesus is telling a story. Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness, and he scorned everyone else. And he gives this example of two men. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, and the other was a despised tax collector. Now the Pharisee stood by himself, and he prayed this prayer. Here's his prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not like the other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers, and I'm certainly not like that tax collector over there. I fast twice a week, and I give you a tenth of my income. 
And it says this in verse 13, but the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even to lift his eyes to heaven and he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest. In sorrow, he said these words, oh God, be merciful to me for I am a sinner. But God would draw him near. It's a story, it's a parable, but God draws us near. What God does, this person's moved, he's impacted. And the Lord says, I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God, for those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. The point is what? There are those who are not poor in spirit, and there are those who are poor in spirit. There are those who are counting on their own righteousness, and there's others that know that their righteousness is nothing but filthy rags before a holy and a righteous God, and they need to be what? They need to have their sins atoned for. They need Jesus to come in and radically take over their lives, to do the things that they can't ever do on their own, which is to cleanse them. Oh, what could wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. I wonder how many people here today, I thought this this week, I wonder how many people here today can identify with the tax collector, and I wonder how many people can identify with the sinner. I wonder if even today, as you've heard this sermon, the word of God being spoken, were you touched by God? What has God revealed to you? How is it like today, even the believer, how are you going to respond to what you heard? How are you going to respond? Has he spoken to you through his word today? How has he spoken? Think about that. Has he spoken and how has he spoken? It's important to know how he's speaking to us. Will you respond to what you hear? Will you repent of your sins? Are you who the Bible is talking about today? Are you poor in spirit? Remember, it's the poor in spirit who've come to the realization that they are spiritually bankrupt. They give up on themselves. They've come to the end of themselves, and they say no more. The poor in spirit have come to this realization that their sin was heinous before a holy God, that it deserved judgment, yet they escaped such judgment because of what Christ has done. Do you see the gospel just woven all the way through here? It's foundational. The Beatitudes, many have said, the Beatitudes are attitudes. And I even hate to say it because it sounds corny, but it is true. The Beatitudes are attitudes, but attitudes of what? They're attitudes of the heart. They're attitudes of the heart. The Beatitudes reveal our hearts. They expose us. They reveal that Jesus has performed heart surgery in our hearts or not. The Beatitudes reveal that your heart was either changed or it's not changed. That's the message. So here's my question. Are you born again? I just want you to think about that. Are you born again? If you were to die tonight, 
do you know where you would spend eternity? If you're not sure, I want to ask you four questions so we can find out. Number one, is there evidence that the Holy Spirit is bearing witness in your soul? Is there evidence that the Holy Spirit is bearing witness in your soul? Number two, are you living a holy life, a set-apart life? Number three, do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you hunger and thirst for the Word of God? Do you hunger in your prayer life? Number four, are you convicted over your sin? If you don't have these things in your life, again, none of us have them perfectly, but if the pattern of your life is that you don't have these things, or you know I've never had these things, well, then I would have you consider what I'm getting ready to tell you. You should question your salvation. I would not want to stand in front of a holy and a righteous God if I didn't have a pattern of these in my life. Because these are the marks of a Christian. We need to understand a few things as I close. Sin is a terminal disease. There's only one cure for the disease. There's only one remedy. The remedy is a person. His name is Jesus Christ. We have to remember that it was Jesus who took the sin upon himself, our sin, and he satisfied the full wrath of a holy and a righteous God. What was he doing? He was communing our death sentence, meaning he's able to set us free. It's Jesus who promises to give us this new heart with new desires. When we're saved, he gives us a new heart with new desires. So my question would be, for many of you, will you surrender your life? Will you pray, place your faith in Christ alone? Will you come out from the crowd today? Remember that word crowd? Will you come out from the crowd today? And then I want to urge you with something. Don't come out tomorrow today. Let today be the day of salvation. I've lived long enough to know that we have no guarantee of tomorrow, and many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. Today, if God's calling you to himself, I don't want you to miss this invitation. Come today. Let today be the day of salvation. I want you to hear this. I want you to be counted as those who are blessed. Blessed. Blessed why? Because you know what you deserve. Your conscience bears witness to it. The word conscience means with knowledge. You're, you're, you know. And then today I would urge you to come forward and trust Christ as your Lord and Savior. I'm not going to call you right now at the end of the service. I'll ask you and I'll tell you how we can do that. I want many of you to be counted as blessed because you're poor in spirit. And I want you also to understand that you have this promise of the kingdom of heaven that God is for you. So, at the end of this service, here's what I'm going to do. 
at the very end of this service, there's going to be no fanfare, but my wife and I will be standing right over there. And if that was for somebody that's in this audience today, maybe one, two, three, four, I would just ask that you would just wait till we can get, get to you, and then we'll talk about it. By talking to me doesn't make you a Christian, but we can talk about the things of the Lord, and we can certainly get you in the right direction, and we can talk and work through these things. So I'll be sitting right over there. There will also be some people at the end of our service who will be sitting up here. Maybe you say, I need some prayer about something. i got a wayward daughter or a son. I'm going through this. i got a health issue. Or I, I, I'm just I'm curious about some things. Well, there will be people up here ready to pray with you as well. That will be at the end of the service. So literally, there will be, be one more song, and then the service is going to end. There will be no fanfare. We'll just be standing up here. We want to serve you in that way. I will close out with this. Please think about what you heard, Christian or non-Christian. How will you respond to what you hear? Let it be a response, not guilt, not legalism. Just respond to the goodness of God. And then tell somebody about it. I trust that today is the day of salvation. And if it's not, we're going to just keep preaching until it is. Because that's the job. That's our job. Amen? Would you stand with me in prayer? Father God, we come before you. We just thank you for who you are and what you've done. Thank you for the hope of the gospel. Thank you for these beatitudes. For those of us that are in Christ, they're certainly encouraging. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done. Thank you for the promises that you give us in these beatitudes. And I do pray, Lord, that our attitudes of our heart reflect the goodness and kindness that you show to us as you willingly went to a cross you were slaughtered for our iniquity you have communed our death sentence because you're a kind and a merciful god lord if there's anybody here that doesn't know you i just pray lord humbly that today they would make that known that we would put our arms around that man that woman whoever it is and help them and point them to the cross that they will know that we're going to do it together. In the name of Christ Jesus, we pray. Amen.